The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to our first lecture of the 2022 fall season of the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. I, I'd like to extend also a welcome to those of you who are watching online uh, through our live stream, and for those of you participating in that forum, please submit any questions you have directly through the chat box. Uh, for the Q&A period. My name is Chris Kenner. I'm the Deputy uh, Chief of the Collections Division uh, here at the Army Heritage and Education Center. And uh, we're charged with maintaining all of the archival artifact and uh, library collections here. Um, and I have the distinct honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Alan Allport, our speaker tonight. Uh, Dr. Allport is a professor of history at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs specializing in the history of Britain during the First and Second World Wars. His notable publications include Browned Off and Bloody Minded, The British Soldier Goes to War 1939 to 1945, and Demobbed Coming Home After the Second World War, which won the Longman History Today Book of the Year Award. Tonight, Dr. Allport's lecture, based on his most recent book, Britain at Bay, The Epic Story of the Second World War 1938 to 1941, We'll examine British politics, society, and strategy during these crucial years and assess how political and strategic decisions and their human consequences shaped and influenced today's Britain. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Alan Allport. Thanks, Chris. Hello, everyone. Hope everybody can hear me okay. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Thank you to the, uh, the center for inviting me. Um, I'm going to, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to start teaching a, an American military history course with my ROTC students at Syracuse. So uh, I'll, I'll be very much focused on things on the other side of the Atlantic for, uh, for the fall. So it's nice to be going back to my home turf uh, tonight. So I'm going to start by talking about a newspaper article. Uh, it was published on December the 10th, 1939 by the Sunday Express. Uh, in Britain, you can see uh, the, the uh, part of it there. An article called, Is There a New Way to Fight This Strange War? And it was written by the gentleman who you can see there, Captain Basil H. Little Hart, who was billed uh, by the, the Sunday Express as world famous as the, le the leading military historian. My gosh. Um, now, this billing was not uh, entirely fatuous. Uh, if Little Hart were alive today, he would be uh, a renowned influencer, as I think we, we would call him today. He'd probably have a regular spot on the cable shows, uh, an award-winning YouTube channel, and a couple of million Twitter followers. Um, Little Hart was the, a gifted author of popular history, a tireless writer of letters. The catalog of his papers at King's College in London lists 780 major correspondents alone. And he was a shameless self-publicist who rarely missed an opportunity to hawk his own intellectual brand. Brian Reed, 
uh, another great military historian in Britain, has said, during the 1960s, Little Hart's reputation reached extraordinary heights. When he visited Israel in 1960, his trip stimulated more public interest than that of any other foreign visitor except Marilyn Monroe. Little Hart had been born in 1895. He was the son of a Wesleyan minister. And he had served three short tours of duty on the Western Front as a junior infantry officer before being gassed on the Somme in 1916. Now, even before his battlefield injuries, Little Hart's health had been delicate. And despite lengthy recuperation, he never fully recovered from his, um, his wartime injuries. He spent the rest of the First World War engaged in staff work. And though he stayed on in the British Army after the armistice, he was effectively discharged in 1923 as a medical invalid. Needing to make a living for himself, he turned to writing. He became the military correspondent for the Daily Telegraph and later for the Times. And it was from the platforms of these newspapers and others, such as the Sunday Express, as well as from a series of well-received military histories and a carefully cultivated network of senior army and political context, that Littlehart was able to spend much of the 20s and 30s laying out his criticisms of British wartime and contemporary strategy. Now, the context for Littlehart's article, uh, December 10th, 1939, is, of course, the third month of the Second World War. Germany had invaded Poland on September the 1st. Britain and France had responded with declarations of war on September the 3rd, but taken no immediate military action to aid the Poles or to attack Germany either by air, land, or sea. The German invasion of Poland had proceeded effectively with rapid armored thrusts into the Polish interior, supported by tactical air power. And any lingering chances that the Poles had of continuing resistance ended on September the 17th, when the Soviet Union moved troops into eastern Poland, ostensibly to protect Russian-speaking communities there, in actuality to fulfill its side of the secret, rather cynical carve up of Poland agreed with Hitler in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August. Poland surrendered on October the 6th and had been divided up between its two invaders. The Soviet Union had proceeded to invade Finland with the tacit acquiescence of Nazi Germany on November the 30th, though that campaign uh, was going to prove much tougher than the Red Army had anticipated. But on the Western Front, uh, aside from some skirmishing at sea, little else had happened since the declaration of war. Italy, somewhat to everyone's surprise, had decided to remain neutral for the time being. On the Western Front itself, uh, the two sides, Franco-British and German, remained on their own sides of the barbed wire. Uh, there had hardly been any casualties uh, on either side. And remember, this is an amazing contrast to the opening weeks of the First World War, which everybody remembered very vividly, in which there had been massive casualties in the hundreds of thousands. Um, the first British ground fatality of the Second World War had not occurred until the day before Little Hart's essay was published, December 9th, 1939, when Corporal Thomas Preday, out on a night patrol on the frontier, stepped on a French landmine. So it was a, it was a friendly fire incident. This, then, was the famous phony war, as it was sometimes known in the newspapers, also known as the Boer War, B-O-R-E, 
the French knew it as the Drôle de Guerre, and the, and the Germans as the Zitzkrieg, or the, the sitting war. So, what did Liddleheart have to say about all of this? Um, well, first he reminded his readers of a general military axiom that he had been propounding for some years in various books and newspaper articles. Quote, while modern weapons give an aggressor a greater advantage than ever against a small or primitive country which lacks such equipment, the defense has become master of the attack where two well-equipped modern forces meet, end quote. Poland, Littleheart said, had been too ill-equipped with modern weapons to survive the German and Soviet attack. But, quote, France should be capable of blocking any German attack in the West, end quote, because of its modern military forces. Again, to quote Littleheart, will Hitler be prompted to launch an offensive in the West? It would be unwise to discount the possibility, he said, but his past record shows cool calculation of military prospects and it would be foolish on his part to take the offensive on the main front. There was, Littleheart insisted, no prospect of a quick victory for Hitler. So far, so good. However, Littleheart went on to warn that the Allies' prospects would be endangered if what he called the, they succumbed to the emotional conviction that force must not merely be checked, but crushed by force. For he argued that, quote, an allied offensive in the West has no real chance of success either, end quote. Germany was also too well equipped with modern weapons to be defeated in a land offensive. Littleheart said, quote, unless the allies can discover some magical new weapon for piercing the defense, they may merely grind their manhood to pieces against the defensive wall, end quote. It's a slightly unfortunate turn of phrase, but there it is. Um, some enthusiasm, uh, sorry, sorry um, some enthusiasts for air power had pointed to the possibility of strategic bombing as that sort of magical new weapon that would break the stalemate. And Littleheart himself had actually been one of the very earliest advocates in the mid-1920s for uh, strategic bombing theory, but he had subsequently become skeptical about the likelihood of strategic bombing's effectiveness and also objected to it on moral grounds as well. So he concluded, quote, the war has sunk, except at sea, into a state of stagnation. So what should the Allies do? Littleheart believed that to make further preparations for an offensive ground war against Germany was futile on, uh, for tactical reasons and would alienate neutral opinion by seeming to be too eager for a bloodbath on the Western Front and throwing away the Allies' moral high ground. And crucially, it would exhaust the financial and economic strength of the two allies, the two, two uh, most important allies, Britain and France, in the process. He said, our chief risk of losing the war is in trying to win the war. He suggested instead that the allies should adopt a policy of what he called economic and moral excommunication of Germany until a satisfactory peace settlement was reached. They should continue the naval blockade of Germany, which had begun in September 1939, but otherwise publicly renounce the unprovoked use of offensive ground and air war, 
and return their countries as, as closely as possible to normal peacetime conditions. Essentially, what he was arguing is that the phony war should become a cold war, a standoff with minimal violence until the Third Reich collapsed internally from domestic political rivalries or economic shortages or both and sued for peace. Now, it's probably unnecessary to point out that as a piece of operational forecasting, this article did not age very well uh, over the next few months. In May 1940, Germany launched its mass land offensive against France and the Low Countries, and contrary to Littlehart's assurances back in December that the defense has become master of the attack where two well-equipped modern forces meet, in fact, the Allied armies were swept into the sea in a few weeks, and France forced to surrender by the end of June. Littlehart was never one of those people to dwell too much on his mistakes. Um, soon he was uh, writing articles explaining how the events of spring 1940 did not contradict his earlier arguments at all. Um, after the war, uh, he assisted in the interrogation of many captured German generals and helped to some extent to rehabilitate their reputations uh, in the face of, of many uh, claims about war crimes and, and atrocities by promoting the myth of the clean Wehrmacht, the so-called clean Wehrmacht, with its apolitical officer corps. In return for this um, um, action, former panzer commanders like Heinz Guderian, who had been one of the uh, leading commanders of von Rundstedt's attack uh, in, in France in May 1940, cooperated with Littlehart in creating the myth that his work had helped inspire the Blitzkrieg concept in the 1930s. Uh, articles like, is there a new way to fight this strange war, were quietly forgotten. So there are a number of things we could say about Little Hart but in, in terms of the broad sweep of his career and, uh, and so on. And people like John Mearsheimer and so forth have said them in, in great detail. However, however, uh, whatever lack of prescience there may have been uh, in, in Little Heart in December 1939, two things, however, I think about this article are worth pointing out. One is that for all of its failures, uh, Little Heart's belief that a German ground assault on the West in, May, in 1940 would be a desperate, even foolhardy venture probably looks better now than it did, say, 30 years ago. Uh, military historians who have studied uh, the events of the phony war closely, I, I think generally agreed that um, the so-called Plan Yellow, uh, the Wehrmacht's plan for the invasion of uh, France and the Low Countries, was not the confident, scrupulously calculated application of Blitzkrieg once thought, but an improvised and somewhat reckless, even, gamble that just happened to work, worked spectacularly. Hitler's throw of the dice in spring 1940 to bring the war to an end as soon as possible before the Third Reich's rather grim economic prospects deteriorated still further. Little Hart had been basically right that Germany was not, to quote him, was not capable of standing the economic strain of a long war, end quote. And Hitler knew it too. Few of his generals had any confidence in Plan Yellow's chances of success for the same reasons that Little Hart had laid out 
in December 1939. And its amazing success caught them by surprise as much as anybody else. The other thing to point out, and this is really where I'm going to talk for the rest of the, the lecture, is that in his article, Littlehart had identified a genuine dilemma at the heart of British grand strategy at the outbreak of the Second World War, even though he was not then able to come up with a very convincing way to resolve it. And that dilemma was that Britain sought to remain a great power because only a great power was capable of fighting and winning a major war. Why else would you want to be a great power? But the only way to remain a great power was to avoid fighting such a war in the first place, even a winnable one. And that's an important point to emphasize. Britain was not in a position to win a quick victory against Germany in 1939. It could, and indeed probably would, and eventually did, win a long war against Germany, a war that extended for two or three or more years, or as, as we know, six and a half years ultimately. But fighting such a war would so exhaust Britain's economic and political resources that it would, in the end, be forced to yield its great power status, no matter what the outcome of the war was, won or lost. Moreover, the demands of mobilizing the nation to fight a long war would transform the nature of British society in ways which old-fashioned 19th century liberals like Little Hart found deeply undesirable. Britain would have to become a different kind of country uh, in order to fight such a war. Britain's political leadership class was acutely aware of this dilemma throughout the Second World War, but proved in the end no more capable of coming up with a solution to it than Little Heart had been in December 1939. Now, very familiar gentleman, I suspect, in that picture, no member of that political leadership class had been more conscious of the dilemma than Neville Chamberlain, Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1931 to 1937, and then Prime Minister from 1937 until May 1940 and the man who had led Britain into war in September 1939. Chamberlain's desire to avoid war in the late 1930s, culminating in his appeasement policy towards Nazi Germany, is, in my view, frequently misunderstood merely as a product of naive, wishful thinking or as a noble but doomed repulsion at the hecatombs of corpses that have been produced by the battles of the First World War. Now, there is, there is no, no doubt that there, there, there were aspects of this um, that, could be, that, could be, that could be raised. However, I would argue that appeasement had as much to do with a clear-eyed belief that war by the 1930s had become antithetical to the interests of the British state. Another world war on the scale of the first would be disastrous for British imperial power, no matter which side ultimately won. Britain's commercial and trading network was the largest in the world. Its commitment to global capitalism greater than that of any other nation. It had then far more to lose than any other nation from the disruption of that network through war. Chamberlain desired peace not just because he believed it was the right thing to do, although he did, 
but because, as the British Chiefs of Staff at the time put it uh, in one of their reports, quote, it is in our imperial interests, having an exceedingly vulnerable empire, not to go to war, end quote. Chamberlain's determination to prevent conflict with Germany was founded ultimately on a hard-headed understanding of national advantage. What weighed heavily on Chamberlain's mind was the thought that if he plunged Britain into a needless war, he would be responsible not only for the deaths of millions of people on both sides, but also for the likely collapse of an imperial polity which he believed to be essential to world prosperity and civilization. He could, he wrote, never forget that the ultimate decision, the yes or no, which may decide the fate not only of this generation, but of the British Empire itself, rests with me. Maintaining peace, however, meant maintaining credible deterrence power, which is why, from 1935 onwards, Chamberlain, first as Chancellor and then as Prime Minister, <coughs> oversaw the greatest peacetime military expansion in British history. Total combined annual expenditures on the armed services more than tripled from £107 million to £383 million between 1933 and 1938. By the summer of 1939, so shortly before the war broke out, the government estimated that it would spend £730 million on defense by the end of that year. That, for context, was about as much as the entire central government budget had been back in 1933. It gives some sense of just what the scale of rearmament meant in fiscal terms. Now, the purpose of this rearmament was deterrence. It was not war fighting. As Chamberlain put it in July 1939, quote, the longer war is put off, the less likely it is to come at all as we go on perfecting our defenses. This is what Winston and co, Winston Churchill, of course, never seemed to realize. You don't need offensive forces sufficient to win a smashing victory. What you want are defensive forces sufficiently strong to make it impossible for the other side to win, except at such a cost as to make it not worthwhile. Chamberlain did not want to prepare Britain for another world war. Sometimes Chamberlain's appeasement policy is defended on the grounds that, you know, that he quote-unquote bought time for Britain. But I think in some ways that's a misunderstanding. He wasn't trying to buy time. He was trying to avoid a war full stop. He wanted to prevent another world war from taking place at all. This was because he was convinced that even if Britain won such a war, its cost would be so shattering as to wreck the country's standing as the leading global power. Now, the example of the First World War, of course, was very much in everyone's mind and was a sobering one. That war had meant the destruction of 3.6% of the nation's human capital, 10% of its domestic assets, 24%, one quarter, of its overseas assets. Britain had entered World War I it's the greatest creditor nation in the world and ended it as the greatest debtor nation. And the opportunity costs of the First World War were just as staggering as historian Adrian Gregory, uh, in his very good book on World War I, has put it. Quote, had there been no war, Britain in principle could have built new universities in every major city, hundreds of advanced hospitals, thousands of schools, increased pension provisions and childcare, and still experienced a lower tax burden in 1919 than it did. 
Furthermore, 700,000 mostly young lives would have been spared, end quote. And Britain had been in a stronger position to bear such a sacrifice in 1914 than it was in the 1930s. All this weighed deeply on the mind of a progressive in lots of ways, but still conservative politician like Chamberlain. So far as he was concerned, the proper application of rearmament money was therefore not to prepare for war, but to create a deterrent, quote, so powerful as to render success in attack too doubtful to be worthwhile, end quote. And by doing so, persuade Hitler or any would-be aggressor that a war against the British Empire could not possibly be won, and that mutual negotiation was the only policy that could ever get what they possibly wanted. This is why Chamberlain believed that appeasement was the natural parallel policy to rearmament. And I think it's, if, you, if, 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 we, if we focus on the one without thinking about the other, I think we misunderstand both of them. Appeasement and rearmament were part of a single kind of policy package. Each complemented and reinforced the other. Successful deterrence would, hopefully, convince Hitler that the only way to, to, to resolve his grievances in Europe was at the negotiating table. Successful appeasement would resolve those grievances and so reduce the need for further costly deterrence. Chamberlain's hope was that this virtuous cycle of appeasement and rearmament would produce an authentic peace rather than merely a ruinous balance of terror. And that last point is important because rearmament in the 1930s was intended to be a process with a definite endpoint, so far as Chamberlain was concerned, rather than a new national way of life. Chamberlain wanted to avoid a hot fighting war, but he also, as almost as much, wanted to avoid an interminable standoff with Germany, one in which the two sides, although nominally at peace, spent ever-increasing amounts of their national wealth, building up armaments against one another. Such preparations would have, uh, he believed, bankrupted Britain, even if no war ever broke out. Certainly, they would transform the country's economic uh, and society um, in ways that were hateful to him. Rearmament had disturbing economic and social implications for a middle-class 19th century liberal like Chamberlain, or for that matter, Little Hart. It meant, for one thing, a rapid rise in government spending and revenue. Defense spending in the 1930s was, as The Economist magazine puts it, quote, the greatest public works program ever devised in time of formal peace, end quote. Between 1935 and 1938, public expenditure rose by 17.6% in Britain. And to match this growth in outlay, an increasingly large share of the nation's personal income had to be siphoned off in the form of taxes, national insurance, and health contributions. The burden of rearmament spending was not distributed evenly across the classes. It was middle-class incomes that were paying predominantly for armaments factories. And these were factories that would then employ mostly working-class laborers. Rearmament was, in that sense, a process of wealth transfer from one class to another. Between 1938 and 1940, manual working wages in Britain had increased by 30%, while middle-class salaries 
remained virtually unchanged. And in April 1938, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir John Simon, had warned the Cabinet that the growth of rearmament spending could not continue for much longer unless, he said, we turn ourselves into a different kind of nation. One that forever abandoned the axioms of balanced budgets, low taxation, minimal inflation, and non-state interference in wage and price levels. In other words, all of the, all of the basic economic verities that, that old-fashioned liberals believed in. Expanding the military manufacturing sector any further would necessitate drastic new government powers. Millions of workers in the munitions factories would become government employees in all but name. Their demands would have to be appeased in the name of industrial peace. Militant Britain would become a centralized Jacobin state, rigorously regulated, unsympathetic towards traditional civic liberties, socialist in practice, if not in principle. When we consider then why many Britons were attracted to the appeasement policies of the late 1930s, it's important to remember that so far as many of them were concerned, it wasn't just a question of the international balance of power. Oliver Harvey, who was uh, one of the principal private secretary of the Foreign uh, Secretary, Lord Halifax, said, any war will bring vast and unknown social changes, win or lose. And for, for members of the respectable British middle class, this was an ominous prospect. The First World War had shattered the British aristocracy. Um, it seemed as though a Second World War would surely finish the job for the middle classes. Its cost would be measured not just in lives, terrible that, what that would be. War would also accelerate the rise of a new kind of egalitarian democracy, which they thought would be coarse, unprincipled, and irreversible. They knew that any such conflict would be, to quote a famous book on the subject, a people's war. And they hated the idea of a people's war. Now, we, you know, perhaps we'll return to this in the, in the questions. Whatever we think about some of these social changes, we think that greater egalitarianism uh, in, in mid-century was a good thing. I think that myself. But for, for someone like Chamberlain or Little Hart, this is a disturbing a disturbing prospect in the 1930s. Now, as we know, Chamberlain's desire to maintain peace failed. His hope that the Munich Agreement of September 1938 had laid the foundation for a fundamental settlement of European borders proved to be futile. After Hitler reneged on the Munich Agreement in March 1939, Britain and France made one last desperate attempt at deterrence by guaranteeing Poland's borders and making it clear that a German attack on the Poles would mean war. Hitler either did not believe them or, with the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact in hand, did not care, and so triggered war in September 1939. From the point of view of the British political leadership class, the inability to maintain peace represented the single greatest failure of national grand strategy since 1914. This is where, from the point of view of that class, really everything went wrong from this point onwards. The goal had been to preserve peace, and they could not do it. This is not because the British were afraid of actually losing the war. Right from the very beginning, they were sanguine, in fact, about their prospects. Now, winning a short war 
a war of the space of a few months through a series of rapid military victories was not a realistic goal, and they knew that. Germany was far too advanced in its early rearmament to be matched on the battlefield. Plus, the peoples of military dictatorships were, it was felt, more psychologically mobilized for war than those of democracies. But so long as any initial blow by the Germans could be successfully absorbed, and remember, the French army was the largest in Europe in 1939 and regarded as, as the most powerful military force in the world, this seemed a reasonable enough assumption. The prognosis for the Allies, then, was good. As Chamberlain put it, a long war would be won with the reserves of resources and credit, not by standing armies. And Britain and France possessed those reserves in far greater depth than Germany. By 1941 or 1942, it was believed the Allies would have such a superiority in manpower and materiel that the outcome would be as Chamberlain's successor as Prime Minister would later say, though in a different context, merely the proper application of overwhelming force. The British did not fear losing the war in September 1939 then. What they feared, as we have said, was the cost of victory. Mobilizing the nation to fight the Germans would involve massive expense and dislocation of the economy, Chamberlain was already committed to building a large air force and maintaining a large navy. He would have liked to have ideally had to keep the British army small in order to try and, and alleviate some of these expenses, leave the ground fighting to the French and have the British focus on power and air at sea. But this division of labor, however logical enough it seemed in London, did not appeal to Paris. The French were not prepared to sacrifice their men's blood in New Verdun's alone. The moral economy of democratic war required a commensurate ground effort by the British, and Chamberlain reluctantly had to introduce conscription and to prepare for the creation of a 55-division imperial army, 32 divisions of which would be recruited directly from the United Kingdom. Now, in the first month of war, the Chancellor, Sir John Simon, warned the cabinet that mobilization was already costing the British state 210 million pounds a month, and the creation of a mass army had barely begun at that point. In January 1940, Lord Stamp delivered a sobering report on the state of national resources. By the end of the first year of war, he estimated Britain would have a balance of payments deficit of 400 million pounds, this was likely to be higher still in a second year, but it only possessed about 450 million pounds in gold assets and about 250 million pounds more realizable from the sale of foreign securities. In other words, this was a massive debt which was in the long term uh, throughout a war unsustainable. Ger defeating the Germans by force of arms was entirely plausible, but the country would emerge from the end of a two or three year conflict even more economically withered than it had been at the end of the First World War. Chamberlain's last hope then, during the phony war, despite having had no choice but to declare war, it might still be possible to win or to at least to reach acceptable peace terms without having to go through the grueling process of actually militarily defeating the German army. And what he had in mind was ultimately not so very different, really, from what Little Hart had sketched out 
in the Sunday Express, a policy of, as he had put it, economic and moral excommunication of Germany until a satisfactory peace settlement was reached. Instead of rushing into a ground war, it would be far preferable to wait and see what happened. Perhaps Hitler would panic and launch an offensive on the Western Front. If so, the Allies ought to be strong enough. Else he would sit and wait also, but time was far less on his side. And Chamberlain said in October 1939, my policy remains the same. Hold on tight, keep up the economic pressure, push on with munitions production and military preparations with the utmost energy. Take no offensive unless Hitler begins it. I reckon that if we are allowed to carry on this policy, we shall have won the war by the spring. Now, I see that time is, is, is on me, but I will, just, I will make a few comments before wrapping up. The first is that the main thing to say about this hold on tight policy was that it almost worked. It very, it very nearly worked, in, in, in my view. Germany really did go through a profound crisis in the winter of 1939, a profound economic crisis. Um, time, Hitler told his generals, is an ally of the Western powers and not of ours. The Western Front offensive in May 1940 was a gamble by Hitler to escape the grim consequences of a long war. It succeeded spectacularly, but it might easily not have done. We don't have time here to go into a, into a, a side, long sidebar discussion about the, the, the French campaign. However, many, I think now probably most military historians would agree that the outcome of that campaign was far more contingent than the myth of overwhelming Blitzkrieg used to allow for. It is not difficult then to imagine a very different outcome to the drama of May 1940 than the one that actually occurred. And if Hitler's offensive in the Ardennes in May 1940 had stalled, as it quite, in my view, it might easily have done, um, there would have been no second chance for the Germans to conquer France. How the war would have proceeded from that point onwards is anyone's guess, but Germany's parlous economic circumstances do not suggest that its chances in a long conflict were promising. Certainly the war and the world would have been very different. But that's not what happened, of course. Plan Yellow succeeded beyond its uh, creator's wildest imaginations. France was knocked out of the war, and the British forced to evacuate the continent. Chamberlain was no longer prime minister at this point, having been replaced by Winston Churchill on the opening day of the campaign. It's arguable that even France's surrender did not fundamentally alter the logic of the war that Churchill inherited. Once the Dunkirk evacuation had extricated the British army from France, the British chiefs of staff were surprisingly sanguine, once again, about the country's long-term prospects, even after the disaster that had just unfolded on the continent. So long as two vital criteria held. One, the ability to maintain lines of maritime supply and communication around the world, and two, the benevolent cooperation of important economic neutrals, most of all the United States. As long as, as long as these two things held, Britain was fairly safe from invasion and capable of continuing the war more or less indefinitely. But what France's surrender in June 1940 did mean was the smashing of Chamberlain's last hope that the long war 
might not have to be fought out after all, and the defeat of Germany might not have to be literally enacted by military force, so that as we know, in May 1945, Soviet and Western Allied troops literally standing on the rubble of Germany, having fought mile by mile, mile block by block uh, to conquer the Third Reich. Because that long war could only be conducted by liquidating much of the military, economic, and political capital that Britain's elite had been trying to preserve in 1939. And by the nation undergoing the kind of social transformation that mid-century conservatives like Churchill, just as much as Chamberlain, feared. Churchill could lead one of the coalition partners that defeated Hitler. What he could not do was alter the war's effect on Britain's traditional place in the world power structure. He would famously remark in a speech in November 1942 that he had not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. But its liquidation, or that of its choicest bits anyway, followed soon all the same. In 1951, Churchill, who was now leader of the conservative opposition, as his former deputy Clement Attlee had become prime minister again, uh, an, an, uh, an example of the way in which the war had socially transformed Britain. Churchill complained that the six years that had followed the end of the war had, quote, marked the greatest fall in the rank and stature of Britain in the world, which has occurred since the loss of the American colonies 200 years ago. Our Oriental Empire has been liquidated. Our resources have been squandered. Our influence among the nations is now less than it has ever been in any period since I remember. Little Hart, 12 years earlier, might well have said, well, what else did you expect from doing so? Anything so foolhardy as to actually fight a great power war. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Is my microphone? Ah, oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Allport. Uh, fantastic talk. Um, We've got some really amazing questions coming in online. Uh, we actually had a few emailed right before the program that I think are very relevant. Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and ask a question online and then after that, please folks here in the crowd, uh, raise your hands and uh, Zach will be around uh, with, the, uh, with the microphone. So to get us started, um, sir, what if any were preparations militarily or diplomatically that the British made towards the Soviets in this period? Great question. Um, so I think, I mean, the context for that is, of course, the fact that in the 1930s, the Soviet Union was just regarded as just as much a, a hostile aggressor nation, certainly to um, uh, the British conservative class, which, which ran the country, as Nazi Germany. And for many, for many people, including, I think, probably Chamberlain, there wasn't a great deal to, to choose between Hitler and Stalin. Um, this was an enormous complication for Britain and France because, of course, one of the great stabilizing factors in European diplomacy in 1914 had been the Franco-Russian alliance and had been the, uh, the fact that if Germany attacked either France or Russia, that it would face a two-front war. Uh, and so there was, at the same time as kind of an ideological antipathy towards the Soviet Union, there was this kind of nagging sense that there was, a, there was an important strategic issue here. Um, 
it's clear that uh, you know Chamberlain's government certainly uh, dragged its feet somewhat uh, in terms of trying to uh, make overtures towards Stalin. They did send uh, in early 1939. They they send a uh, a military um, 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 a, a group of uh, um, a, a military group to the, to Moscow in order to try and begin you know, talks about talks to begin a possible uh, discussion. It's not really clear. I mean, the, the, course, the, the other question is, is that to what extent, what did Stalin think about all of this? And he was a notoriously cryptic. And we have very, very little sense except through sort of indirect means of being able to know, was, was he ever sincerely interested in trying to cooperate with Britain and France in order to try and uh, prevent Hitler's rise? What we do know is, is that for, for various reasons, by the summer of 1939, he had decided that uh, he, would he would go instead with a, an agreement with Hitler to buy time in order to be able to conduct his own rearmament. It's still debated amongst historians, should Britain and France have been more sincere and should have tried more urgently to work with the Russians? It's, it's, it's arguable. Um, but I do think, to, to return to my original point about that, is that you know, from, the, you know, from a, a moral point of view, there didn't seem to be much in it. You know, the, the thought of uh, keeping Hitler down by raising Stalin up didn't seem to be a particularly attractive prospect. And I suspect also if you, were, if you are uh, Polish or, or Romanian or from the Baltic states or Finnish, then you know, that, that has a particular kind of piquancy too. Good question. I understand uh, <clears throat> that Great Britain, as the global hegemon, uh, had a goal of maintaining political and economic stability with a strategic goal of maintaining the status quo. That, that certainly makes sense. The question is, during this period of the late 1930s, what was the British intelligence service and the chiefs of staff telling Chamberlain about uh, the uh, strategic uh, intentions, capabilities, and most probable course of action of National Socialist Germany, and how did Chamberlain integrate that information into his formulation of his own strategy? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, to give a, to, it's a great question. To give a full answer to it, we'd need another lecture. Um, it's, there's a great book by Wesley Wark, uh, W-A-R-K, on this subject, if anyone is, in, is interested. Chamberlain was not a soldier. And he, unlike Churchill, he, he, he was not, he'd neither had no, no military background nor claimed any. And so he, he lent very heavily on the professional advice of his, um, his chiefs of staff. Um, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question. Um, intelligence gathering in the 1930s was sophisticated in some ways, rather primitive in other ways. The biggest problem, and I don't want to go too into the weeds in this, but, it, but it is a, it's a great question, so I'm very tempted to, is that, you know, the big problem is that there really was not uh, a fully developed joint intelligence committee for the, for the chiefs of staff in the 1930s. In other words, the army, the navy, the air force had their own intelligence gathering operations, but there wasn't really any way of, of synthesizing and analyzing this in any, to produce any kind of single coherent picture. So you tended to get a lot of different voices. Um, broadly, I think what you can say is that the advice in 1938, at the time of the Munich crisis, was that Britain would, if, if war broke out, um, the Czechs would be quickly defeated uh, by the German army. Um, again, there was, there was a sense in which 
broadly. You know, there was some confidence in the idea of a, of a, of a long war, but there was certainly very, very little chance of actually being able to uh, save Czechoslovakia. Um, and the advice was that if there had to be a war, which would, was regretted by everyone, then it probably would be better to wait for another 12 to 18 months when some of the rearmament measures had been complete. Now, we have no idea, ultimately, of knowing whether this advice was, was wise or, or foolish. And there, lots of historians have argued this out. What would have happened if war had broken out in, in September 1938 rather than September 1939? Which side would have had the upper hand compared to what actually happened? Would Germany have been very quickly defeated? Uh, what would the Russians have done? To go back to the, the earlier question. I mean, these are all fascinating counterfactuals. All I would say about this, and I should be very clear, I've, I have sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking broadly uh, in, in, in defense of Chamberlain uh, tonight. I have lots of criticisms of my, in myself, which I talk about in my book. He is a deeply flawed politician in lots of ways. However, one thing I would say in his defense was that when he goes and makes the Munich Agreement with Hitler in September 1938, he is doing so overwhelmingly with the backing of his chiefs of staff, his military chiefs of staff, who say this is absolutely the right thing to do at this particular moment. Um, if he, you know, this is, this is of course, I mean, ultimately, he made the decision. He was, he was the prime minister. He gets to make the final call. However, of course, he felt he had a responsibility to at least listen to the advice of his professional experts. It is worth bearing in mind, you know, if Chamberlain had decided anyway to go to war in September 1938, and that war had turned out badly, and Britain had not done well, what would historians say about him today? What, you know, this arrogant conceit of this man who ignored all of the professional military advice he was receiving from his chiefs of staff and decided to go to, go to war anyway, all of the intelligence estimates and so on, we would, we would condemn him, you know, uh, in the same way that we, can, we condemn him now, but for, di for different reasons. Um, but it was a complicated picture. As I say, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, and the, the, the way in which... Um, the British intelligence services both understood and also kind of misunderstood in lots of ways what was going on in Germany is a really fascinating one. It's a kind of background to this. So thank you for bringing that up. All right, Dr. Alport, I have one from online here. Um, could you expand a little bit upon the fear of social change and upheaval uh, that involvement in war with Germany would bring? Sure. Well, again, um, you know, this, the example of the First World War had been one in which had brought drastic social change to, to Great Britain. The, you know, Britain, it's arguable, in, in August 1914 had been a country which had been um, ruled by a, uh, you know, an aristocratic landowning class. Now, as I said in the lecture, we may look at that and think that that was, you know, that, that was not, not the equitable solution. We may be glad that the 20th century saw a, you know, a transformation to a more egalitarian society with a more equal distribution of wealth and power and so on. I, I personally think that. However, again, from the point of view of the traditional conservative elite that ran the country, this was much to be regretted, the way in which the First World War had really undermined the power of the leading aristocracy. And the, and the gentleman up there on the, on the, the top left was, not, was, was foremost in regretting the way in which Britain's society was evolving in the 20th century. This, the, the grandson of, a, of a, the Duke of Marlborough. So it was, it was clear that you know, war would bring quote, what we would now think of as quote unquote big government, and it would bring um, 
a more egalitarian society, which again, depending on your point of view, was either a good thing or a bad thing. Um, rearmament in the late 30s was already starting to make those kind of shifts, shifts particularly that were starting to hurt the traditional middle class. Chamberlain considered himself to be the kind of the representative of the middle class. This is the kind of the bulwark of the country, the, res the respectable middle. Um, and so while he was a progressive in lots of ways and did want to see kind of incremental reform and incremental change, he very much regretted the idea that um, a second world war would really undermine that traditional conservative elite once and for all. And there is no question that, that is true. Um, Britain still has a, an old Etonian as a prime minister. It is, it, that, that, is, that is true. So let's not pretend that cl class has just completely disappeared. Uh, however, it is, it is nonetheless the case that you know, May 1945, uh, uh, the Labour Party takes over a country which has, in lots of ways, been socially and politically transformed by war. This is not something that the, the leadership class of 1939 looked on you know, with... with uh, with, 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 with pleasure. It was something to be, it was something to be a, a, you know, uh, at the very least, it was something that had dangerous potential repercussions, and otherwise it was something to be regretted. Uh, hi, sorry, my name's Nate. Um, so I was wondering if you might be able to speak to some of the concerns that maybe uh, Churchill or Chamberlain's government had uh, concerning their oriental empire, their oriental holdings, um, if any, prior to um, the lead up to uh, the second, their involvement in the Second World War, with Japan becoming more and more friendly with Germany? Well, I mean, the context of, of um, the 20s and 30s is one which paradoxically, although the British Empire actually expands after for the First World War, it's actually, it, uh, it reaches its, in territorial terms, it reaches its, its greatest extent in around 1920 or so because it acquires a huge amount of territory in the Middle East from the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and so you get these new mandates in Iraq and, and uh, excuse me, what's today, Israel and Jordan and, and so on. Um, but there is also a, um, the First World War has, a, has a, a, you know, a, a powerful stimulus to the kind of centrifugal tendencies in the empire both from the, what, what used to be known rather sort of politically incorrectly today as the, as the white dominions, in other words, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, towards greater self-government, and also from um, certain crown colonies and the, and the Indian uh, empire, the greatest of these, of course, to, towards great, greater nationalist self-determination. Now, again, it's somewhat, somewhat similarly to the way I talked about domestic change. We may now look on this with approval. Uh, Empire's probably, probably doomed in the long term, and good riddance to it, I think, is, is, is what I would say personally from the vantage point of 2022. However, that is not the way that Chamberlain or Churchill saw it back in the, the 1930s. Um, they regarded, you know, they were not um, hostile to the idea of gradual incremental change. The empire had always been, a, uh, you know, one of, 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 of reform and progress. But the idea of its complete collapse, they regarded the British Empire as being one of the foundation stones of justice and peace in the world. Now, whatever we personally think about that, that was the way that they saw it. You know, and they sincerely did. This was not just a cynical view. They really regarded the British Empire as being one of the basic bulwarks of the, Europe, of the, of the international order. Its destruction, then, would be regrettable from their point of view. Certainly, it's rapid, uncontrolled destruction. 
would be, would be regrettable. And I think correctly, they, certainly Chamberlain, realized that the stresses of war would, however much it might be possible to win another great power war against Germany, the stresses of mobilizing uh, the empire would accelerate its dissolution. And which, of course, he was completely right, ultimately. The Indian Empire plays a massive role in the mobilization of the British Empire for war, both in Europe and then eventually, of course, in East Asia as well against the Japanese. However, it also greatly accelerates India's move towards self-government and, uh, and independence. Similarly, by, say, early 1942, uh, the John Curtin was already saying, you know, because of the fall of Singapore and the collapse of British power in East Asia, that Australia from this point onwards would look to, not to London, but to Washington DC for its future security, which of course is basically the story of Australian foreign relations ever, ever, ever since. Um, whether or not some of these processes were going to happen sooner or later anyway is, is, a, is a question for, an, for another lecture. What we think about them is a, is a, is a different question too. But um, if you are a, a British policymaker, part of that, that traditional establishment in the 30s, Again, this is something to be regretted. This is something to be feared. Um, this, is one of, this is, again, one of the reasons why Chamberlain wants to, not just to put off a war, but to avoid one entirely, because ultimately he fears that it will destroy this uh, institution, which, for better or worse, he regards as being uh, you know, important to, to, to world peace. Sir, I have a very interesting question, and this is actually coming from a high school history teacher just right down oh, the road in uh, Camp Hill. Um, so, from the fall of France in May 1940 to Barbarossa in June 1941, how much uh, of a support and assistance were the Commonwealth nations to the situation Britain was in? Uh, a very important one, um, both in terms of uh, manpower, material. So, we, we're talking here then uh, about the dominions, then also the, the empire. I and mean, of course, the great myth of the summer of 1940. Uh, in Britain, and a myth that still has very powerful resonance is the idea of being alone. Uh, and there is the, uh, some of you may have seen a famous cartoon by David Lowe in the Evening Standard, which, which shows a uh, British Tommy standing on the rocks, waving his fist at the, at the oncoming German bombers and saying, well, very, very well then, alone, uh, as, they, as they sort of you know, fight off the mass of, the, 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 uh, of Nazi Germany. Now, of course, alone was, was always a total myth right from the very beginning. Britain is the center of a, of a worldwide empire of something in the nature of 400 million people. Um, its power is enormously dependent upon mobilizing that, uh, that, those resources. Um, the role of Canada alone, for instance, uh, is crucial in terms of both maintaining those lines of communication which I talked about. The Royal Canadian Navy becomes, I think, the fourth largest in the world during the uh, the Second World War as it, mo as it mobilizes its uh, escort defenses for the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, it also provides massive support for the expansion of the Air Force, the Imperial Air Force, through training, uh, which uh, allows the creation of the bombing offensive um, from, in, from sort of 1941 onwards. So that's hugely important. Um, the role of the United States is hugely important too, probably one that is, is not so uh, highlighted, I think, in British memories, uh, the war. In the summer of 1940, 
I think it's genuinely unclear about wh what, what um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration will do about the fall of France. I mean, the fall of France, again, I can never emphasize this enough when I'm full of, uh, you know, an audience. The fall of France was the most shocking event that had happened in the first half of the 20th century. No, nobody had anticipated this from Hitler onwards. Nobody had anticipated that France would fall so quickly. Um, and it completely transformed the security situation in the world, not just, not just in Europe. And the FDR administration had to think very carefully about what it, what it, how it responded to that. You know, you know, the, the big question is, was Britain still a going concern? Was it, was, it, was it worth making the investment in defending the British Isles? Or was Britain doomed at this point? In which case it would be far more sensible in order to, to concentrate on a Western hemispheric defense strategy, defend the, the, uh, the, 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 the continental United States, and then think about that as a, as a kind of power, a base from which to project power. And there are important voices in the FDR administration, including General Marshall, the head of the, the US Army, who are basically saying, you know, we, we, we need to concentrate on our own defense at this point and not, not, uh, not, not that of Britain, which was very uncertain. FDR thinks about it. You know, and he, he, uh, over the course of late summer and, and the fall of 1940, ultimately, I think, in, in big part to the, the success of the Battle of Britain, the ability of the British to fight off the German Air Force, he decides ultimately that he's going to back Britain because it is very much in the vital national interest of the United States in order to preserve Britain, Britain's independence. And this, this proves to be absolutely crucial because coming back to the, one of the points I made earlier on about liquidity, you know, Britain, Britain's big problem by the end of 1940 is it can fight the war, but it's running out of cash. It desperately needs material, particularly from the United States. And because of the US Neutrality Act, um, it, cannot, it cannot lend money on Wall Street and it cannot buy on credit. Um, it's, it's, it's basically a bookkeeping nightmare. It ha it, it must, it's running out of dollars uh, and it cannot buy materials anymore. And this is the genesis, the germ, of course, of Lend-Lease. The, the following year where FDR essentially says, we just ignore the problem, basically. We just keep on sending the stuff anyway. Had that not happened, well, we don't know what would have happened. But, but I, think we, I think what we can confidently say is that Britain's position would have been enormously complicated as a result of this uh, because, of that, because of that undermining of that, of that essential financial uh, lifeline. So I guess going back to the original question, all of these things are tremendously important. Britain, does, Britain never fights the war alone uh, and is always reliant on both assistance from its, from, from its imperial partners as well as, its, as, its, as other sovereign nations. All right, sir, I think we've got time for one more question from here in the crowd. Uh, let's go up there in the front. I think you, are, you already answered my question, but in the late 30s, when the United Kingdom started to rearm, does that imply the Canadians and the Australians were doing likewise? Was there a grand strategy that involved the empire, or did they sort of jump on the bandwagon in, October, <laughs> in, in uh, September of 39? That's a great question. Um, there was not really a very, a very clearly considered imperial grand strategy, although there had been voices saying that there ought to be one. There was a good deal of resistance from the governments in, uh, in Canberra and, and Ottawa and Auckland uh, about the idea of, a, of, a, um, of, of, a, of an imperial strategy. Frankly, I've been very kind, I think, to the Dominions up to this point. Um, 
They dragged their feet, rather, in the, uh, in the late 1930s. There was, there was a tendency to lump um, defense spending upon the metropole, upon the United Kingdom, rather than really seriously consider you know, greater spending uh, in Canada and Australia and, and New Zealand. This is one of the reasons, incidentally, why the, some of the most greatest voices for, in support of an appeasement policy came from the Dominions. In September 1938, uh, Mackenzie King, for instance, makes it fairly clear that it is by no means obvious that Canada will enter a war against Germany if, if, if Chamberlain goes to war over the Munich crisis. Uh, we don't know what would have happened. Uh, my own suspicion is, is that New Zealand would have come in. Um, Australia, reluctantly, I think, would have, would have come in. Um, South Africa would not and would have remained neutral. And I think it was a tussle uh, with, with, with Canada. I think that what you can say about Canada is, is that it would have been an enormously divided nation uh, if war had broken out in September 1938. I mean, there are already, there are divisions anyway that happen in, 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 in the real world in Canada uh, between the different communities about the, about the war. Um, so, I mean, so that, that's kind of worth thinking about with regard to, the, regard to this, this um, you know, there was, low level of defense expenditure and a, and a massive desire to avoid uh, war. Now, once war actually comes, then there is a, a sea change in lots of ways in, in attitude. Uh, Canada, as I've already mentioned, mobilizes enormously. I think the Canadian role in the war actually is one that's rather under, underappreciated and one that's, that's worth putting a lot, a lot greater emphasis on. Um, Australia and New Zealand's war, of course, is transformed as well then when uh, Japan enters the war in December 1941, because then in many ways it becomes a different kind of war for, for both of those countries, and war which is not happening thousands of miles away, but is actually rather uncomfortably close. Um, they all emerge differently as different kinds of countries at the end of World War II, and although you can look at the imperial, pro I mean, in some ways, of course, you can look at the imperial project as having been an enormous success, that it does ultimately lead to war, but it also means that Canada, Australia, South Africa certainly, even New Zealand, you know, are much more sovereign, independent countries at the end, at the end of the war. They're very much thinking about their own security situations in very different terms than they had in 1939 and not looking uh, exclusively to London for, for, uh, for security. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if we can give a big hand for Dr. Allport here for joining us Thank tonight. you very much. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to invite uh, Mr. Chris Kinner up to say a few words on behalf of the War College and, uh, and AHEC team. Uh, sir, if you don't mind uh, sticking oh, on up there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, and thank you for an outstanding and informative lecture. Oh, I really appreciate it. your insight and perspective. Um, I think that as we enter a new era of great power competition, there are a lot of lessons that we can draw from the British experience of the 30s and early 40s. Right. Um, in keeping with Army tradition of recognizing excellence, um, I'd like to take this opportunity to present you with a Ridgeway coin. Oh, wonderful. Um, Thank you very and, much. And uh, essentially, I'll paraphrase here, but a uh, soldier must be rooted in the past to understand the present and project himself into the future. Um, so these lessons here, you know, that, that you've been able to draw out and communicate to us tonight, I think have great advantage as we enter uh, th this new era. So thanks again. We're greatly appreciative of your time here. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.